hey, I was thinking about trying something for the season four opening. I'm glad you have an idea because I have no freaking idea what we're doing here. Uh, well, you know when the baseball players are walking up to the plate? You're a big baseball fan, right? So, oh, yeah. So they walk up and sometimes they'll play some song that the batter has chosen. Oh, dude, it's a walk-up song. Absolutely. Okay, excellent. Walk-up song. I thought that we could do that to introduce us for the season. What do you think? I love it. Okay. What song would you pick for your walk-up song? I got to tell you, I'm tempted to pick something by Olivia Newton-John just because (laughs) I was in love with her for so long. You're hopelessly devoted to her. Okay. I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) Do I have to pick just one? Because there are like a ton I could pick. I'm going to go old school, like uh, ACDC Thunderstruck. Excellent. ACDC is from Australia. And Olivia Newton-John's from Australia. See, we got a theme for the song. Okay. Nice. And I'm sure they collaborated on a lot of things. (laughs) Them Uh. and the Wiggles. (laughs) I'm going to do the Wiggles for my walk-up song. Chug-a-chug-a big red car. We'll travel near and we'll travel far. No, no, stay on task. (laughs) Thunderstruck. All right, so this would be your walk-up. Friends and fans, standing at 6 feet 0 inches, 180 pounds of raw muscle. Hailing from the Mile High City, Denver, Colorado, he's a dedicated runner and trumpet player, and longtime faculty member at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Please welcome Quantitude co-host Patrick Curran. Huh? What do you think? Oh, dude, I made a career error in not going into baseball. Uh-huh. Okay, what's your walk-up song? I'd probably go with something like one of my favorite songs is Take the Power Back by Rage Against the Machine. I think in the end, I'd probably go with that one. Okay. Do you not? No, I. this is a judge-free zone, but when you could have chosen from Metallica or Led Zeppelin. <laughs> or Olivia Newton-John. Hey, back off. Okay. All right, let's give that one a go. Next up, formerly 5 feet 9 inches, weighing in at 7,938 grams, born and raised in the Emerald City, Seattle, Washington. He's an Aries, he's half Transylvanian, raised by a single dad who let him watch five hours of TV on school days. He's a longtime faculty member at the University of Maryland. Please welcome your other Quantitude co-host, Craig What do you think? I think that had you chosen Big Red Car by the Wiggles, you wouldn't have had to bleep out a word two minutes into our first episode. I think the Wiggles go blue in a couple of episodes. They do. There was a dark side of the Wiggles. Maybe we should just have Tate do the theme music again. Oh. Can Tate help us out? Let's ask him. Tate, what do you think? Can he help us out with the music? You got it, gentlemen. Holy cow. I guess he's on the other side of puberty. Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my far-from-ordinary least square friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In our opening episode to Season 4, Greg and I delve into ordinary least square's estimation where it came from, what it attempts to achieve, and where it can take us from here. Along the way, we also discuss Golden Retrievers Who Are Neither Gold Nor Retrieve, Olivia Newton-John, Subconning Out Our Own Work, The Meat Sweats, You Should Know, 
being intolerably self-righteous, losing your camel, saying ham in French, Calvin Ball, Frank finding Gauss's corpse, crudely describing regression, and sexy Hulk. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back, season four. Woohoo! Dude, it's 8.30 in the morning. We don't need that. <laughs> no woohoo? Not now, not ever. <laughs> All right. Well, can you quietly tell us, did you have a good summer? I had a great summer. Took some trips, hung out on my mm-hmm. brother's back deck in Denver. Nice. I went to LA with teenagers to visit colleges. Ooh. A low of 68 and a high of 72. And I stepped off the aircraft in Raleigh and was hit in the face with humidity. And I turned and tried to fight my way back <laughs> onto the plane and they just shoved me out. I'm going back to Cali, Cali, Cali. I'm going back to Cali. I don't think so. Took a road trip up to see you. You did, and that was great fun. Greg has a dog named Gus. What kind of dog is Gus? Gus is called an English cream golden retriever, which means he's not golden at all. He's white, and for the record, he actually doesn't retrieve either. His Latin name is Legus Lickus, because... (laughs) Evidently, his reason for living is to lick my legs. Your legs, specifically. Out of a room full of bare legs, (laughs) mine get licked. (laughs) Gus is adorable. And he has an entire basket of these little stuffed animals. One by one throughout the day, he brings them outside in the front yard and leaves them. And I pulled up and it looked like some crop circle out front. I darn near drove off. I mean, it's about the best security system you can have because clearly a psychotic family lives in the house with the crop circle of stuffies. How about you? How was your summer? Um, Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the trips. I didn't go out to California, but the college trips are starting to be a thing, right? You have two kids who are seniors this year in high school. I have someone who's a senior in high school. So life is consumed with all things college. And frankly, I don't remember any of that for myself. I think I just remember submitting one or two applications, and that was pretty much it. But doing it, we are, as are you, obviously. And your son, Quinn, helped me with some entertainment value because he was working on his essay at the dining room table. (laughs) I took a picture on my phone and texted it to my wife and said, Quinn is almost done with his college essays (laughs) when my two kids don't even know where they're going to apply yet. Ten minutes later, one of my kids texted me back and said, what the f*** did you do? So I want to thank Quinn for that. Sure. I'll pass that on. What I didn't do over the summer is make any episodes with you. Yeah, you know, this time we didn't even pretend. No. You and I both study longitudinal data, and we have some passing respect for trends. In the first summer, how many episodes did we do? Eight. Okay, so that was like some kind of summer camp or something. (laughs) Yep. Then in the second summer, how many? (laughs) Three historical episodes. Yeah, yeah. This past summer, none, (laughs) none episodes, and not only that, but we subconned our work to everyone else by making them make the memes. (laughs) There were some funny ass memes submitted. Hilarious. And clearly people have too much free time (laughs) because we were getting like hundreds of submissions for these things. (laughs) 
You sent out, what, some kind of spiral binder or something. Yeah, right. Each week's winner got a Quantitude spiral binder. Now we have a number of winners throughout. And so we decided to pick a grand prize winner from among those. Do you still have a printer at home? I do have a printer. Okay, you're going to print out each of the memes. Okay. I want you to spread them out on a grid in the front lawn. Mm -hmm. I was traveling in Central America. I went into a bar. There was a big crowd in the back. There was a grid painted on the floor. People were frantically betting and exchanging monies. They blew a whistle and let a chicken go. Mm -hmm. And everybody had bought a square <laughs> the square that the chicken pooped in <laughs> is the person who won <laughs> and i lost twenty dollars <laughs> you are gonna put these out on a grid in your front lawn okay and the one that gus drops his stuffy on is gonna be the winner <laughs> we're gonna pause recording and i want you to go do this right now okay we will come back when we have a winner all right deal You know, my friend, that was no small task. <laughs> I put each of the images in an envelope so that I did not know what was what, right? This was, does that make it single blind, double blind? So I put them around the yard. I didn't do a grid, but I spread them around the yard. And then I let Gus out. And what did he do? He just flopped over on his side. <laughs> he did not care at all about what was going on. But eventually I sort of got him up and around and he did in fact drop his stuffy. Outstanding. Which one was it? Uh, it was his moose stuffy. Okay, when I said which one was it, I was a little less interested in which stuffy. <laughs> I was a little it's more interested. It's the moose. The problem was he dropped it right between <laughs> two of the envelopes. Okay, so fine. So you have two envelopes. I'm gonna open the first one. Okay. This is so exciting. It's dramatic. Okay, hold it up so I can see it. Dude, is that a picture of my leg? <laughs> yep, I put a picture of your leg in there. Okay. And obviously, Gus, even though he couldn't see it through the envelope, he clearly gravitated toward it. Do you mind if I ask just more broadly? Uh, how do you have a picture of my leg? <clears throat> That's a longer story. Okay. Uh, all right, so let's take a look at the real winner uh, in the other envelope. Are you ready? Wait, I don't win? It is my <laughs> leg. I thought I won. <laughs> Congratulations. It's a, a major award. Well, a I don't know major what was the... award. But it's a lamp, you nincompoop, but it's a major award. I won it. Damn hell, you say you won it? Yeah, mind power, sweet mind power. <laughs> <laughs> the real winner is... I can't see what it is. Describe it to me. I see the name, Michael Mata. Yep, Michael Mata. He had one of the first memes of the summer, the one about when you should or should not dichotomize a variable. And what was the image? I forget. It was a pie chart. Oh, that's right. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, congratulations, Michael. Does he win a picture of my leg then? Is that... <laughs> I will give him the option. Okay. Uh, I'll give him the option of either a picture of your leg or maybe the quantitude swag of his choosing. How about that? Ooh, nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Michael. And thank you to everyone for squandering your valuable time on this stuff as we had a ball with that. Yeah, that was so much fun. Thanks, everybody. All right. Now, let's get back to work. So, dude. I drove up. I did not have my red Camaro. No, that's right. What was it? Two or three years ago, I rented a car for reasons I won't bore you with. The car that I selected was not there, and they gave me a red Camaro, and I was never going to come back. Although, I drove the red Camaro and then went five miles an hour on I-95 for like 100 miles. <laughs> 
No red Camaro, but I went up. We hung out in your backyard. We hung out with your family. You took me to Meat Fest yes. in downtown Baltimore at the Brazilian Steakhouse. Yep. And I got the meat sweats. <laughs> And I was so <laughs> proud of your son. Oh, my God. If anybody has been to this restaurant, what's it called? Fogo de Chão. These men and women walk around with grilled meat on spikes mm. and cut it for you at your table. You have a little card in front of you that's green or red. Mm-hmm. I never turned mine over from green. <laughs> I just left green. <laughs> Greg's son, Quinn, sat down, and we all went to the salad bar table and came back, and Quinn hadn't moved. <laughs> And he sat there with a blank plate, and over 90 minutes, all he ate was meat. It was amazing. Unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, this is a kid who sits in his pajamas all day, coding, eating Honey Nut Cheerios. That's pretty much it. We have to force food groups on him. And he shows up at this restaurant and cleans them out. I have never (laughs) seen him eat that much. It's crazy. When we were downtown on the Inner Harbor, you and I took a walk down memory lane and sat on the bench where this entire boondoggle started. Now, we did not have to scale a barbed wire topped (laughs) chain link fence like the first time. Uh (laughs) But it was really fun to sit there and say, wow, that was a horrible decision. Uh The bench. It was the bench. (laughs) It was a lot of years ago now. We're moving into season four. We got episode one. What do we want to do? We got some ideas and knowing you and me, we won't do half of them. One of the things that we talked about was doing some more fundamentals kind of stuff. People are foolish enough to use a handful of our episodes in their teaching. I have an amazing graduate student named Chris Strauss. Chris is in there last year. They're working on their dissertation. Indeed, they're going to propose it in a couple of weeks. They have TA'd for me for a number of classes. They are a gifted teacher. Mm-hmm. And something they use in their own class is what they call you should know. (laughs) And at the end of each week, they send an email to their class of Mm S-Y-S-K, of you should know. I have stolen this for my own teaching. And out of the lectures, out of the readings, out of the problem set, in the last seven days of everything that we've talked about, this is the that you should know. Hmm. Greg and I thought we could weave some of that stuff in here. If you're navigating these waters, whether you're quanti or non-quanti, whether you're doing developmental work in quantitative methods or you're a user or a teacher or whatever it might be, there are a box full of things that you should just have at your fingertips. We talked about this a season or two ago. My daughter plays piano and she has a professional teacher who talks about having songs at your fingertips. And it's a similar kind of thing. But we thought that we would start season one with an S-Y-S-K on ordinary least squares. And it's really just symbolic of how we have devolved. Because in season one, it was, oh, you should have songs at your fingertips. And now it's like, yeah, it's some shit you should know. (laughs) Believe it or not, we actually get a ton of requests, right? Like last year, we had partial correlation, and we did sampling distributions, and statistical degrees of freedom, and information theory. Okay, information theory? (laughs) You made me do that. That's fine. All right, so today we are going to talk about ordinary least squares because this is something that is foundational. This is like, well, it's like the bench that we sat on three and a half years ago, Patrick. It's where... Okay. Just stop. I was having a moment. I'm hopelessly devoted to you. 
You know, my kids are out at the dining room table, and every time I come out from recording one of these, they look at me and say, what is your job? (laughs) This is something you need in your back pocket, because it is a foundation to so much of what we do. And whether it's not exactly what we end up using as an estimator, it is the motivation for moving to something else. So this could be a shit you should know episode. This could be a how to be intolerably righteous episode. (laughs) That's you every episode. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry. Okay, I see that. Uh Somebody says something and you say, you know, that's not quite right, actually. And then go into how to be intolerably self-righteous. So let's talk about that. Because you know where a logical starting point is? Uh, The orbits of the planets. I can always work in Ptolemaic (laughs) and Copernican models of the universe. So take us there. Get in our way back machine. This stuff goes back 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. A lot of where what we can think about as curve fitting comes from Mm -hmm. is back where there were stars, there was the moon, there was the sun. People had figured out north, south, east, west, but there were absolute fundamentals that were unknown. And a big one was, what is the shape of the earth? Mm -hmm. And some people argued it was a disk. Some argued it was an infinite plane. That kind of made sense, right? Because if your camel wandered off and never came back, well, (laughs) uh, just dang, I got to get a new camel now. (laughs) Some argued, well, it was a sphere. Mm -hmm. You had empirical observations, you had the positions of the stars, you knew what city you were in, you knew how far the cities were apart, you knew where the stars were relative to the city, and with some very complicated geometry, they figured out, ah, it was a sphere. Mm -hmm. How did they do that? Well, they fit a function to observations that the only shape that would make sense is a sphere. And it's like, all right, guys, got it. Great. It's a sphere. If we wait long enough, the camel will probably come back if it doesn't (laughs) stop and and start a life somewhere else. Except somebody said, okay, I'm cool. It's a sphere. How big is it? Ooh, good question. We got to figure out how big the sphere is. All right. So then we got it. Ah, now we got a pretty good estimate of how big it is. Cool. Hey, notice sun comes up, sun comes down. We seem to be a sphere. It seems to be a sphere. We seem to be rotating around stuff. The orbit gets a circle. Mm -hmm. Kepler says, ah, you're all morons. It's an (laughs) ellipse. How do you know it's an ellipse? Look at the data, dude. I fit this trajectory to the data. It's all curve fitting. Mm -hmm. Damned if Laplace, back in the day, right, we did, I'm sure we talked about Laplace in our summer, did we? You're better at remembering these things than I am. The French were involved. Let's just say that. It's always the French. And de moi. De moi, French. Le gendre Laplace. Okay, you're just making stuff up now at this point. (laughs) I traveled in France for several weeks and all I ate were ham sandwiches because that was the only French word I knew. Sandwich au jambon. Sandwich au jambon. (laughs) We have observations. They are imperfect. It was trying to do some kind of curve fitting to figure out these massively fundamental things about whether you should wait for your camel to come back or get a new camel. (laughs) And that brings up another issue that arises in everyday life. And it sounds silly to say, but it's really important to think about in these settings is what is best? 
right? That's fundamentally when I think about estimation is what does it mean best? Mm -hmm. How do you best get an estimate of the curvature of the earth? And it's kind of funny because you hear people talk about, well, what's the best kind of car to get? What's the best restaurant to go to? And heavens, you and I are dealing with this with the kids. What's the best college? Mm -hmm. Every time you think about it, it's with respect to what? Right. What do you mean the best college? You could go to Harvard and have a horrible experience. You could go to Cape Fear Community College and flourish. It all depends on how we define best. So if you have a set of these observations, how would... Calvin Ball. <laughs> What? <laughs> no, it's all Calvin Ball. Estimation is all Calvin Ball. Okay. I am a diehard Calvin and Hobbes fan. In Calvin and Hobbes is a thing called Calvin Ball. He plays it with himself and his stuffed tiger. Mm -hmm. And Calvin Ball is defined by rules that you make up as you go. And so in the middle of Calvin Ball, you make a new rule, and then that becomes a rule for Calvin Ball until the next rule is made. I see estimation as Calvin Ball, which is we have a goal in which we have a belief about something that exists. Mm -hmm. the circumference of the earth. We have a set of observations that we've made over time in different places where we want to estimate that circumference. So we have some population value, we have some sample data, and we want to get that, and here's the best estimate of mm -hmm. what that is based on the sample data. We can set up whatever criteria we would like. That's the Calvin Ball rule. It absolutely is, right? So if you wanted to stand somewhere in the middle of a set of scores and talk about how much variability there is, first of all, where do I stand in the middle of this set of scores? It's not entirely clear. And in part, maybe it depends on how you want to define the rules for variability. So you might want to say, where could I stand in the middle and then judge what the biggest residual is, what the biggest deviation is from where I'm standing? Maybe that will help you to decide where a good place to stand is. So what we might say is variability is the place where the average residual, the average deviation, I don't care whether it's above me or below me, where the average deviation is the smallest. That simultaneously would accomplish two things, define a middle place to stand, and it would also define a measure of variability, which would be like an average deviation from that middle. That did not win. That version of Calvin Ball was not the ultimate winner. Think about two points, one that has a residual of plus one and one that has a residual of minus one. Mm -hmm. The mean of those two residuals is zero. Well done. Now you have a point that's positive 10 and negative 10. Well done. You got a mean of zero mm. crap. Yeah. We need a new Calvin Ball rule. <laughs> yeah, because we've got some positive deviations and some negative deviations. We could ignore the sign associated with that, which sometimes we do, but I will tell you, mathematically dealing with absolute values is a complete pain. And so the other option, which we're all familiar with by now, is drum roll, please. we want to avoid the plus one minus one plus ten minus ten and we don't want to strip off a negative by looking at absolute we can square them so now we represent the plus one minus one we have one and one the plus ten minus ten we have a hundred and a hundred 
ooh, now it represents that distance. But as you alluded to, working with absolute values are an absolute punch in the face for driving (laughs) fit functions. Squares are not, because squares take us to freshman math. They start defining really beautiful parabolas, and we can work with really beautiful parabolas. So this idea of squaring deviations and using that as a criterion, to me, I remember when I first learned this, it sounded kind of lame. It's like oh, that's why we square it, to get rid of the sign? And the answer is, well, yeah, partly. But dealing with the square has a lot of mathematically beautiful properties, but it also ties to other things that we care about statistically. Now, I'm describing it as one came before the other, but if you think about other stuff that we do, we take moments of distributions, right? First moment, second moment, third moment, fourth moment, which has to do with powers associated with the deviation. So it aligns really nicely with those. And also, square deviations tie to distributions that we know and love. The F distribution is a way to compare variances that are based on square deviations. The chi-square distribution is a way to compare not a variance, but a sum of squares to some known population value. So the idea of squaring these deviations is something that just brings this tremendous harmony of the spheres. I saw them open for Olivia (laughs) Newton-John. You better shape up, cause I need a man. No. (laughs) So Laplace anticipated Calvin Ball like 250 (laughs) years before, because what Laplace said is, hey, I've got all these observations. I've got a thing I'm trying to do. This is not just, hey, guys, look what I found. These are very specific goals. What is the shape? What is the size? What is the orbit? Can we predict relative positions of one planet against the face of the other planet? These are very targeted questions. And he says, well, we can minimize the biggest residual. We could minimize the sum of the signed residual. We could minimize the average absolute residual. Each of these is a Calvin Ball criterion, and each of these is a form of best. Where he landed, for the reasons that you just described, is we can minimize the sum of the squared residuals. Okay, so let's pick that apart. Minimize the sum of the squared residuals least squares. Why is it ordinary? Well, we can talk about that because it turns out there are different variations of that. But that is where the term least squares comes from, is our criterion that we are going to use to define what is best is they are the values that we calculate that results in the smallest possible sum of the squared residuals. So that means when we have a univariate case, the sample mean for a set of scores is the least squares estimator because the square deviations from that, the sum of square deviations is a minimum. That's the principle of least squares. But now this extends well beyond the case of, well, we've got 10 measurements of how Saturn transits across the heavens to where we start to have systems of multiple variables. But this principle of least squares carries forward. I know it is just the first episode and I should have gotten my shovel before we started recording. (laughs) Because I should probably go dig up Gauss. <laughs> you know, why do we even rebury Gauss anymore? Frank. <laughs> 
That's Patrick's neighbor, Frank, by the way. Who is retired now. The number of times he said, hey, Patrick, I saw you got a new leaf blower and I can't help but notice Gauss's corpse. (laughs) I'm like, geez. (laughs) Let's drag in Gauss's corpse because Gauss said, dude, Laplace, that is amazing. I got some things I can add to that. And that turns into the classical linear prediction model. Which, for those of you who haven't done the calculus, it's such a beautiful thing. Like, you will weep tears of joy if you go through and derive it. The line of best fit has a slope and intercept that minimizes the sum of square deviations of the points from that line where we define the deviations or residuals from that line as being in the vertical direction, in the y direction. So we are not literally minimizing the perpendicular distances from a line. So if you were given a scatter plot and someone said, hey, throw a line in there, your eyeball might gravitate toward a line that minimizes how far the points are in terms of their most immediate direct distance to the line. But that's not what we actually do. We don't set a criterion as a distance that is a combination of X and Y information because the goal of regression is often to be able to make predictions about or understand an outcome variable Y. We focus on minimizing those residuals that, in this case, are in the vertical dimension. And so if you go through the calculus and say what intercept and slope would minimize the sum of square deviations of points in the vertical direction from a line, it just falls out the formula for the intercept the formula for the slope and you really get all choked up after you do the calculus sexy hulk (laughs) so one of the blank memes was like mean hulk and then evidently what's called sexy hulk although that's lost on me hot hulk or whatever (laughs) but one of the submissions that was made and it didn't make it to the final four but i have to admit it was one of my favorite i still love the winner Uh uh-huh but it was one of my favorite. The Raging Hulk was simulation mm-hmm. and Sexy Hulk was derivation. And I don't know who did it. And if you're listening, well done. That was one of my favorite. Uh-huh. Because I've told stories in the past where Bauer and I have worked together for a lot of years and he actually understands math and I don't. I do massive simulation of just hit it as hard as you can and Dan is sexy Hulk and does the <laughs> derivations. We had an episode, I don't know, you tell me, buddy, is it was the regression, the friend you had in high school. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit before. I don't remember what episode that was. Mm-hmm. We talked about that a little bit in there. And just to briefly repeat it, of what Greg just described, is it really is a beautiful thing. Because imagine that you have a scatter plot between X and Y, and you want to go back to fifth or sixth grade, and we learn this here of the line of best fit a mm-hmm. plus bx it's a line the scatter plots around it and so on we want to get what is the best line all right well think about what is the best college what is the best car what is the best estimate well we're going to define best as that estimate that results in the smallest possible sum of the squared residuals so we could rage hulk it right <laughs> so we have an xy scatter plot and we just pick for the slope. Mm -hmm. We calculate the residuals, we square them, we add them up, and we go to another plot where the x-axis is that value of your slope, so it's 0.5, and the y-axis is the sum of the squared residuals. So we're going to take 0.5 and we're going to go up and we're going to put a dot right where that sum of the squared residuals. Now I'm going to rage Hulk (laughs) 0.7. I'm going to compute the residuals, I'm going to square them, I'm going to add them up, I'm going to go to my second plot, 
I'm going to go to 0.7 and I'm going to go up to what that sum of the squared residuals is. 0 0.3, 0 0.2, negative 0 0.1, 0.5. I'm going to rage the hell out of this. You're going to start to see the outline of a parabola. Mm -hmm. Sexy Hulk is going to say, okay, do your Hulk voice of like no rage Hulk. I don't know, whatever. Mm, how are you doing? Mm. That was it? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Hot Hulk says, I can write an equation for that parabola. And not only can I write an equation for that, I can write an equation for the derivative of that, meaning it is the slope of the tangent line at any point. I can take that derivative equation and set it to zero, mm -hmm. which means that is the point when it's horizontal, which means that's the point at the bottom of that parabola, which means that is the minimum sum of the squared residuals, we're going to call that a normal equation. Mm -hmm. The point at which that tangent line is zero, we're going to solve for that. And damned if that isn't the least square's best estimate of the slope of that line, given the Calvin ball criteria you said defined best, which was minimizing the sum of the squared residuals. You rage with your rage hulk. You simulate the heck out of it, and you draw that parabola, and Bauer next door, hot hulk, says, yeah, I could, <laughs> I could have derived that, and does. And ultimately, you guys come to the same answer. I will say that there's some value in rage hulk for other things where it's much harder to derive than you simulate the heck out of it, and you get a sense of things. But for this, this is something that has a closed form. This is something that's derivable. And so we have exact equations for the intercept and the slope. There's so much that's beautiful in this. First of all, if I may say, the idea of the sum of squares is not just something that solved a problem of distances being positive or negative. It's not just tied to other distributions. We use squares and sums of squares all the time in our daily lives. Think about the first time you took a geometry class and you learned about a right triangle and you were given the length of one side, the length of the other side, and you had to figure out the length of the hypotenuse and you squared the length of each of those legs and you summed them up. You summed some squares and the length of the hypotenuse was the square root of those. We are doing the exact same thing. So this whole sum of squares thing is really nothing more than an extension of Euclidean geometry, an extension of Pythagoras. It's got hypotenuse written all over it. So this aligns so beautifully with everything that we have done, things that you have done since you were a little geometry student. And then it also extends beautifully to having more variables. Rather than talking about points vertically above or below a line, this extends into the multiple regression world. And a line becomes a plane. Picture facing the corner of a room and the floor that comes out to the left is X1. Mm -hmm. The floor that comes out to the right is X2. Y is the wall that goes up to the ceiling. You have a three-dimensional space. You have a sphere of points. If there's a relation, it's more like a football of points. Right. You're taking a sheet of plywood and trying to, at the same time, get that X1 slope with Y and that X2 slope with Y that jointly minimizes the sum of the squared residuals of the points above and below the plane. Now we can rage hulk and sexy hulk <laughs> that as well. But instead of a two-dimensional where there's a beta one on the x-axis and a sum of the squared residuals on the y, now 
there's a beta 1 with x1, beta 2 with x2, and the parabola becomes an egg. And now instead of computing a derivative of the nonlinear function that gives us that tangent line that we set to zero that gives us the bottom of the parabola, now we have partial derivatives where we're going to look at those tangent lines of each. We get a little cross at the bottom of the egg, Mm -hmm. and that is the value of B1 and B2 that jointly give the smallest sum of the squared residuals. And that's about the last opportunity we have to be able to visualize it the way you described, but it obviously extends to more X's as well. Bring as many X's as you want. One way that I sometimes describe multiple regression, which is a very crude way, is that you have a bunch of X's, right? And your goal, someone says, I'm gonna give you these X's and you have to build something that looks as much like Y as possible. And you come up with a recipe. Oh, okay, so I need three tablespoons of X1, and I need two teaspoons of X2, and I need three milliliters of X3. And then you come up with this particular thing that creates things that look as much like Y as possible. So when we talk about sums of squares with respect to lines and planes and all of that, at the end of the day, the sums of squares that we're minimizing are the differences between the observed Ys and the predicted Ys, where the predicted Ys are the best concoction you can make where you only have the Xs to play with. This extends to as many Xs as you have, and it is a beautiful thing. When you said that it was a crude way of describing regression, I thought I was going to have to beep out a bunch of stuff. (laughs) You have a f***ing X and a f***ing whole Y, and you take some damn combination of the mother and that's your f***ing model. Are you happy? That's how I crudely describe regression. Thank you, Rage Hulk. (laughs) I'm telling you, Uh the analogy works. Your point is exceedingly well taken. These squared deviations start coming up all over the place of sums of squares and things that we do with those, whether that be a variance, whether that be taking a square root to get a standard deviation, whether it means powering them to third and fourth powers to get things like skewness and kurtosis, Mm -hmm. whether that means we take the length of vectors and areas of a hyperplane to get a determinant, They are all variations on sums of squares. All right, so to review so far, Mm -hmm. we have Rage Hulk, Sexy Hulk, (laughs) Wandering Camels. Mm, Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball. What about the Reaper? (laughs) The Reaper has to make an appearance in episode one, season four. Okay, buddy, where do we pay the Reaper? There are a variety of places where we pay the Reaper or we make assumptions that then make us pay the Reaper. One of the problems when you square things is that bigger things when you square them get way, way bigger and (laughs) and smaller things don't. That means that whenever we square residuals or deviations, things that are very far away get way, way far away in a squared metric. And what that does for better or worse, is it starts to give certain data points more leverage, potentially, more say in that measure of variability. So when we have a score that is an outlier, you square that guy and it really contributes and maybe even over-contributes. So one of the downsides of least squares is that it's extremely sensitive to outliers. Okay, so I'm going to throw a little pop quiz at you then. I mean, we might as well work all sorts of things into this first episode. Oh boy. All right, what? What that takes us back to 
is the best. What is the best estimator? Well, there's not a single best. We have to have a set of Calvin ball rules that if they apply, least squares is the best method available. But if they do not apply, it may not be. So here's your pop quiz. I made the effort to dig up Gauss and drag in his corpse. I think I've already done my part in this discussion. (laughs) Tell me what are some of Gauss's conditions that would lead ordinary least squares to be the best linear unbiased estimator. Okay, I'll throw one out and then you throw one out. No, I called the game. Calvin Ball rules state that I can make up a new rule right now and it becomes a new rule. Did I understand that correctly? You understood that correctly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How about normality associated with the residual? (laughs) Gauss didn't say one word about normality of the residuals. This is a little bit of an urban myth of least squares. Does least squares estimation require normality? Mm -hmm. Gauss-Markov never invokes the assumption of normality. That was a trick question. You're going to come out swinging, aren't you? Uh Uh-huh, I am. So when we want to make inferences later about predictions, normality starts to rear its head for the significance test. But specifically for the minimization, for the least squares estimation, you're right, normality doesn't even creep in there. That's another How to Lose Friends and Be Intolerably (laughs) Self-Righteous. It's a book Greg and I are working on. (laughs) That's something that you can drop at a cocktail party, which is... To obtain the best point estimates using least squares estimation invokes nothing about the shape of the distribution. Now, the shape of the distribution becomes fundamentally important if we want to start making assumptions about the shape of sampling distributions. Why do we do that? Because we need to find areas under the curve. Why do we need to do that so we can assign probabilities? Well, how do you get area under the curve if you don't know what the curve is? All right, mm-hmm. all of that comes in. But Gauss and then later Markov, who set out these Calvin Ball rules for least squares estimation, never invoke normality. So I saw mm-hmm. your little intellectual judo you just did to me because not only did you bounce it back to me, but you didn't even do one to begin with. You started number one on me. So what did Gauss say? Wait, no. And now it's your turn. How does that work? That's what we already said, that you would do the next. So, okay, go ahead. Now you do the next one. Linear in the parameters. What the heck does that mean? Dude, are you reflecting the entire thing on me? (laughs) This is another urban myth in least squares is I have heard people say you should never use linear regression because everything we study is Mm nonlinear. That's not correct to say the linearity is in the relation between X and Y. Picture an XY relation that is a big St. Louis arch parabola of a curve. We can do that in the linear regression model. Mm -hmm. We have beta naught plus beta one X plus beta two X squared. There you go. We can have nonlinear predictors, but notice beta not beta one and beta two are themselves entering the model linearly. We do not have beta not plus beta one e 
to the beta 2x, mm -hmm. that is nonlinear in the parameters because beta 2 lives up in the cockpit of the exponential. Okay, <laughs> that we can't do. Mm -hmm. But Gauss said as an opening gambit, it has to be linear in the parameters. So then I guess I throw another one at you? Well, I've done like three at this <laughs> point, and so I can run the table if you want. Let's rip through these. All right. Gauss nor Markov ever said anything about measurement error. All right, yeah. this turned into an urban myths episode. It is an urban myth that Gauss-Markov says that the predictors are error-free. What Gauss-Markov states is the distributions are fixed and known. There you go. It means that we don't make an assumption about the shape of the predictors, and we assume the predictors are error-free. But Gauss, even at the bottom of my grave that I'm trying <laughs> to hide from Frank, <laughs> is you can still hear Gauss mumble out there. I was going to use like a British accent, but first it'll come out as a pirate. And second... I don't know what his country of origin is. Uh, he's German. Okay, so I'm not even going there. <laughs> At the bottom of his grave, Gauss keeps grousing about, he never said anything about measurement error. It is that they are fixed and known, and then a logical outcome of that is they are error-free. That's number three. Actually, <laughs> we're listing all the things it's not. Um, <laughs> that's great. What, what else do you have off your list? Speed through. No, you have not given me one. I know what's going on here. I see this. How about homoscedasticity? Yes, Gauss did say that. The variance across the length of the line, across the plane, across whatever surface it is that you have, the variability is constant across that. So that is the three-dimensional baguette. You have an XY, you have an ellipse. It comes away from the piece of paper from you because it's a joint distribution. And no matter where you cut the baguette at different values of X and turn and look at the sides, that is the same distribution. Now, Gauss said that doesn't have to be normal, but it has to be homoscedastic. Later, when we want to do inferences, then that does have to be normal. Mm -hmm. When you cut that baguette, it has to have a mean of zero and the same variance no matter where you cut. How about independence of errors? No two residuals can be any more or less related than any other two residuals. And that's sometimes called the IID assumption. The residuals are independent and identically distributed. What else you got on your list? A couple of core ones are you have to have at least one more subject than number of predictors. This is another intolerably self-righteous one where you're at a cocktail party and say, oh, did you know? And what that is is, I don't know why, <laughs> what that allows is you can invert the matrix. If you have five predictors, all you need are six people and you're fine. Well, okay, maybe not, but you get the point. There has to be variability in your predictor variables. That makes perfect sense. You can't have a constant. You have to have variability in your X's. You can't have perfect collinearity. So you can't have two predictors that are correlated 1.0. They can get awfully close and we can talk about that on another day, but they can't be perfect. You can't have a correlation between a residual and a predictor and you have to have a correct model. And that's a weird one to get your head around. What does that mean? A correct model? Okay, you realize that over 10 minutes, you haven't answered a single question, and you have black belt judoed me on the entire <laughs> thing. If you don't know, then that's fine. I don't. Would you please tell me? <laughs> Wait, what was the question? <laughs> Does it matter? 
Yeah, the assumption about something being the right model kind of pervades a lot of things that we have. There's either a lot we could unpack there or not much that we could unpack there. I'm going to judo move you and not unpack it right there. But if all of these things are in place, then the estimator is said to be... Blue. There you go. Best linear unbiased estimate. And we as statisticians are hopelessly devoted to blue. No. No? It's too early in the season. Hopelessly. No? You're not going to Dude, I'm going to tap out right here if you don't stop. <laughs> All right. What do you want to say about blue? Calvin Ball. Gauss Markov is Calvin Ball. And when you meet that, there exists no other estimator in that class of linear estimators that results in a smaller sum of squared residuals. It is the best linear unbiased estimator available. But it's just like saying what is the best college, it depends. Is OLS blue? It is under Gauss-Markov. And when those conditions don't hold, then what do we do? Have episode two or three or four where we say, <laughs> what do we do? Mm-hmm. What if it is not homoscedastic? What if it is not independent? What if you don't have a continuous dependent variable? All of these things say, ooh, we violated Calvin Ball. It is no longer our best linear unbiased estimator. Then we get into this really interesting topographical space, which is, well, is it close enough for government work? <laughs> Or do we need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, nah, I can't use this anymore. I got to move to something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, a topic for future conversations is when do we tap out and move to other things? But before we do that, Mm -hmm. I think we should all take a moment of deep and sincere respect for least squares estimation because it is profoundly important and interesting and cool and rage Hulk and sexy (laughs) Hulk will still give you that same B1 that's the bottom of that parabola. Sexy Hulk does it much sexier than Rage Hulk does. <laughs> you know what? I am Rage Hulk uh-huh. who can't bench press his own body weight. That's because you need to get physical. Physical. You need to... No? Everything that we have talked about so far has fallen under the heading of ordinary least squares, which is in this linear family with certain assumptions that are being made. What is beyond the ordinary, Patrick? Ooh, well, what about something like two-stage least squares or partial least squares? All of these things are variants on the same theme but allow us to do things that maybe ordinary least squares does not, but it's still that same foundation. And I think we should address those on a later episode. Let's do that. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you for tolerating us. And we're looking forward to season four. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to avoid class prep for the new school year. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool back-to-school Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that not even Fisher's Z-Prime transformation could make normal. Today's episode has been sponsored by U.S. College Ranking Reports. Always handy to have around in case you need a random number generator. 
and by asymptotes, your function's way of asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And finally, by Ricklepim. Believe it or not, this is not a Charles Dickens character. Oh, Mr. Ricklepim. This is most definitely not NPR. You have been listening to Quantitude, the number one ranked quantitative methods podcast at East Chapel Hill High School. But I like two psychologists for beers.